on Tuesdays, the typical rhythm at Frontline is that we get together with all of our staff members from our four congregations. And Tuesday is a day where we train together, we worship together, we pray for each other, we care for each other's souls. And what's so funny is normally on Tuesday, you can just sense the energy in the room, right? Like these people are really excited to be working for Jesus. They're excited to be together. There's great questions. Um, Sometimes we get into some really good debates and conversations about the word of God. And it's always historically just a really high energy, highlight of the week kind of moment. And this last Tuesday, it was the first Tuesday of the new year, and it felt like a funeral dirge. It was the most depressing low energy, bummed out group of people I've ever hung out with in my life. And I was reflecting on like, what is happening in this room, man? Like who stole the energy? Who stole the passion for Jesus? Like, why are we all so sad to be here? Clearly everybody wants to be at home in pajamas watching Netflix. And and I started thinking about it. And I think what was happening with our staff might've been happening in some of your own families. And that's just the weight and reality of starting a new year of the grind, right? It's the weight and the reality of knowing that we got another 365 days of going to work, punching the clock, trying to get things done, knowing that just like 2017, 2018 is gonna leave a lot of tasks that we thought were gonna get finished completely unfinished. Can I get an amen? I think it's just that sober weight of looking at a new year and just knowing, man, uh, challenges are gonna rise to meet me and work is gonna be frustrating at times and I'm not gonna be able to do everything that I feel like I should be able to do, that I wanna be able to do because we live in a world where work is difficult. Now, if you work at Frontline, don't give too robust an amen, but it is true, right? It's true. So as we were thinking about that and reflecting and praying, we wanted to kick off this new year by just taking a couple of minutes and talking about Jesus's vision for work, Jesus's strategy for work, what Jesus thinks about your job. And I wanna say a couple of things as we dive into this. When we talk about work today, we're not just talking about a couple of professions. We're talking about the concept of vocation, which is related to God's holy calling. And what happens in the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that was really beautiful was that the church recovered this idea of the priesthood of the believer. What had happened for a couple centuries is that in the church, there was this gap that was created between the clergy and the quote unquote laity. And what happened in that gap is over time, people started to believe that if you were called to be a nun or a priest or a monk, then Jesus really cared about your vocation because your vocation was spiritual. But if you were a stay-at-home mom, or if you were a banker, or if you were a farmer, or if you were a baker, then your calling was a junior varsity calling in the kingdom of God. One of the things that was really beautiful in the Protestant Reformation is guys like Martin Luther went back to scripture And what they found as they went back to scripture as it related to work is that God actually sees every single one of his kids as having a holy and divine calling to live in the marketplace, whether they're married as their calling or single as their calling, whether they have a white collar calling or a blue collar calling, they're to see it as actually holy and beautiful and from the hand of God for the expanding of God's kingdom and for the work of thriving on planet earth. 
And what's happened in the last maybe hundred years in the United States is sadly, in a lot of ways, we've resorted back to that really unhealthy medieval view of calling where the really spiritual people in the church are the pastors. The pastors are the ones that are called. And we talk about who's called to ministry. And you might've been raised in the Southern Baptist church or a Methodist church and gone to a youth camp. And the last night was like, hey, if you feel called to the ministry, you're gonna, have, you're gonna walk down to the front and we're gonna pray for you. And certainly what we mean by called to the ministry is something really spiritual, like being a pastor or a missionary or a church planner. Now, don't get me wrong. There is such a thing as offices in the church. And some of you might be called to be elders and be deacons. And that's beautiful and it's good. And those offices are about serving the people of God for the mission of God. But here's what you got to see. One of the most breathtakingly dangerous things that we could do in the church is to flatten out and compartmentalize the work of Jesus in our lives between what is sacred and what is secular. What can start to happen is we can think that Jesus really cares about what happens in the hour and 15 minutes on Sunday mornings. And he really cares about what happens in the hour and a half when you get together in your community group. And he might even care about your quiet time in the morning, but the rest of your life, however you distribute the 168 hours that we all get for one week, however you distribute that, the stuff that's not church or community group or listening to K-Love during your quiet time, that's just really irrelevant to the passion and purpose of Jesus for your life. And I just want to say like that misses the work of Jesus completely. Jesus does not want to be compartmentalized in our lives. And Sunday is really beautiful. This is the Lord's day. And there's things that happen on Sunday that don't happen the rest of the week. And we should come in on Sunday mornings with hearts full and expectant, and sometimes even a bit desperate for God to meet us, expecting that through the word and through sacraments, he's going to do that but we should also realize that the rest of the week is just as sacred. It's just as holy. It's just as beautiful. And whether or not you're a stay-at-home mom or a barista or a doctor or an artist, whatever it is that your job is, your job is a part of the heart of Jesus to meet you and to change you and to actually let you participate in his good work in our city. So today we're gonna talk about work and we're including all of the different jobs in here, including students, um, if you're out of work, like, like many of the people at Frontline are right now, we're talking about your work to find work as we address work. If you're one of our many men and women in recovery and you're, uh, you're in live-in recovery and it's during the first 90 days, man, this is not belittling the fact that you walked away from a job or maybe you lost a job and now you're in recovery. Your recovery work is your work right now for those first 90 days, Amen. So as we talk about work today, this is really important. It's really big and it's really essential if we're not gonna flatten out what it is to follow Jesus all week long. So I'm gonna be going to a bunch of different scriptures. Normally here at Frontline, we camp out in one passage. We like to preach through books of the Bible, but today we're gonna bounce around a lot. And if you're new to the Bible, don't feel stressed out about trying to find all these places. You can write them down and uh, I'm gonna have most of the verses up on the screens. And if you're really fast, if you're like um, Bible drill, quick draw guy, you can keep up, okay? So here we go. We're gonna start by looking at work and creation. So where does work begin? What's God's dream for work? What was the genesis of work? Then we're gonna look at work and the fall. Why are things so frustrated, frustrating? And then we're gonna look at work and redemption, the work of Jesus to change the way that you inhabit your workspace. So let's start with creation. 
Two things happen in creation that are really beautiful according to the Christian account of beginnings. And the two things that are really beautiful is that there's a divine dignity to work. There's a divine dignity to work because work doesn't start as a necessary evil and work doesn't start as like a cosmic battle between good and evil. Work actually starts in God and through God as the divine overflow of God's creativity and generosity. It starts in God. And then God is a God of sharing in his generous countenance to human beings. He makes us image bearers. And part of our assignment as image bearers is to receive identity from God and then work in a way that reflects that identity. So in the beginning, there's a divine dignity to work and there's divine generosity in sharing work. Let me show you these. Genesis chapter two, starting in verse one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his what? Thanks, two of you. That was so, so encouraging. I'm glad that 2018 is gonna be a lot like 2017. Um, yeah. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So let's just stop here for a second. A a lot of ancient creation stories are about like a cosmic battle between good and evil. And the result of that battle was creation. That's not the story in the Bible. The story in the Bible is really refreshing and really different. What we see in the beginning is that all of the created world is the result of the craftsmanship of God. That actually in the divine overflow of the father and the son and the spirit, one God in three persons, out of that divine community, God flows with creative mercy and grace to speak the world into existence. And it would be easy to think that all of God's work was just sort of intellectual work, right? It's just creative or it's just engineering or it's just the work of mathematics or it's just God as scientists creating. But here's what's crazy. God's work includes all of those creative and intellectual labors, but it's also manual labor. Look what happens in Genesis 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and he breathed his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And listen to this. This is so cool. If you work with your hands, if you work with your hands in a culture that sometimes looked down on people that work with their hands, look at God's take on that. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the East. And there he put the man who he had formed. Now, I'm not saying that God at this point in history had taken on flesh yet, God's spirit. But here's what you see. God's getting down in the dirt and God's planting a garden. And in that work, here's what you see in the very beginning, work comes out of God and all work has dignity. Intellectual work has dignity. Creative work has dignity. Hanging drywall has dignity. Being a barista has dignity. Being a carpenter has dignity. Whatever it is that's work that actually helps create culture and society and serve other people has its genesis in the work of God to create this world. Tim Keller puts it like this. Work has dignity because it's something that God does and because we do it in God's place as his representatives. We learn not only that work has dignity in itself, but also that all kinds of work have dignity. 
God's own work in Genesis 1 and 2 is manual labor as he shapes us out of the dust of the earth, deliberately putting a spirit in a physical body and as he plants a garden. So listen, God's creation of this world is not work becoming a necessary evil or work as punishment. In the very beginning, work starts with God. And then what God does, it's so breathtaking. He shares the work of basically um, taking dominion and spreading his glory over the entire globe. He shares that work with humanity. You can see this in a lot of places in Genesis 1 and 2. Let me read you one verse, 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Like this is before sin. This is before man and God's relationship gets fractured. Work doesn't come on the tail end of us sinning. Before we even sinned, work was a part of what it meant to live in shalom with God and to actually reflect God's image and to actually live a weighty, beautiful, significant life. I mean, it's easy to think that if we lived in a world without sin, if we went back to the garden pre-fall, that it would just be like an all-inclusive resort and everybody would get a wristband and eat all the guacamole for free and just like unlimited pina coladas and it would all be great. Well, that would be maybe fun for like four days. And then it would be incredibly boring and futile. And so what God does in the beginning is he creates us as image bearers. He puts dignity and weight on human beings. And then he actually calls us into sharing his work, his creative work of forming culture that reflects the beauty and the nature of God. Now, a lot of you are thinking that seems really naive because my job sucks, (laughs) right? If I could... If I could be so bold, you're like, oh, that's really a cute version of work. You've never met my boss. And I just want you to know, in addition to reading the Bible to get ready for this, I watched the first four seasons of The Office. So I understand where some of you are coming from. The Bible's actually not naive about work. The Bible's really honest about work and why it's so broken. And we see that in Genesis chapter three. Because in Genesis chapter three, here's what happens in a moment that really changed all of the created world, man and woman who were image bearers of God, who God stamped with dignity and worth, who were to be regents under God that would actually exercise God's dominion and rule in this planet. In a tragic moment, they traded creator for creation. And when they traded creator for creation, when they turned their back on obeying God and living in fellowship and communion with God, everything gets busted and broken, including their identity, and flowing out of their identity, their relationship with work. And what we see in all of our dysfunctional relationships with work, what we see is the result of their choice and our continued choices to rebel against God. God speaks to the woman first in Genesis 3.16. And here's what he says to her about work and sin. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing to which all the moms are like, that happened. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Okay, that's really controversial. What does all that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. It means part of her unique labor is gonna move from not being painful to being really, really painful. And it means that her unique relationship with her husband, Adam, instead of it being this beautiful relationship where they partner together under God to bring about God's beautiful work in creation, her desire for him is getting twisted up in probably two ways. 
First of all, her desire is going to be to actually take his place and to compete with him. And he's going to respond in really sinful ways to that. And in addition to that, her desire being for her husband probably means that she's going to want him to do things for her that only God has the capacity of doing. She's going to want him to name her or complete her. Um, So here's what's going to happen. There's going to be friction between men and women. And the work of childbearing is going to be really painful as a picture of all of creation, including work, getting jacked up. Now, look what happens in verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and because you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. What was Adam supposed to do flowing out from Eden? He was supposed to work and keep the grounds. He was supposed to work to spread the garden over the face of the earth. He was supposed to work to bring about the beauty and peace of God in the created order. But now look what happens. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. Here's what he's saying. Work is now going to be painful. It's going to be difficult and it's often going to be futile. You're going to work really hard and sometimes the ground's going to bear fruit and you're going to get to eat of that fruit, but there's often going to be many seasons where the ground doesn't bear enough fruit. You're going to work really hard at your job. You're going to engage your career. You're going to try to engage your kids. And often instead of fruit coming out of those relationships, What's going to come out of those relationships will be thorns and thistles and frustrations and broken dreams and times of not being able to make ends meet. Anybody ever had any thorns and thistles come out of the ground in your work? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it just feels like that's all you're getting out of the ground when you're working. It's like I'm working and it feels like I'm beating my head against a brick wall and I'm trying to plant ideas and I'm trying to work these ideas. I'm trying to care for my family. I'm trying to build for my future. And it just feels like at every turn I get thwarted. And instead of the ground producing fruit and life, it's thorns and it's thistles and there's never enough to go around. This has been the experience of humanity since the beginning. And it's directly related to our broken relationship with God. See, we were to be image bears of God. And the primary mark of an image bearer is that his identity is rooted in the original. We were to find our name in God, our satisfaction in God and flowing out of our name and satisfaction in God. We were to work in a way that reflected the beauty of God. But when you lose your name, when your identity gets distorted and marred and twisted, now all of a sudden our relationship with work gets really busted up because our relationship with God is busted up. What happens in Genesis 11 is a picture of what many of us have done with our jobs. I I don't have this in the screen, but let me just read it to you. This is the whole story of uh, early sinful people trying to build this thing called the Tower of Babel, which is confusing. It's kind of a weird story, but it's also really, really helpful. Here's what they say. Verse four, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What was the purpose of their building this big city? What was the purpose of the labor of their hands? Did you see it in there? Let us make a name for ourselves. What's a name? Well, in the Bible versus today, a name is not just a cute phrase that a mom and dad came up with by looking at baby books 
right? Like a name in the Bible means a lot. It means you have value. It means identity. It means history. It means substance. It means a lot. It's really important in the Bible. And what these guys are saying is, hey, let's use the work of our hands in building this tower, in building this city. Let's use it as a substitute for the God who created us to name us. And now what's happened for all of us is work is not only painful and frustrating, but work is often, work is often idolatrous. Meaning work will show you nine times out of 10 what you really worship and nine times out of 10, what you're really worshiping is not the God that created you. The sluggard who avoids work at any cost, right? The sluggard who's like, only dreams are vacation and couch surfing and like just kind of get to the end and try to find a job that's cushy. The sluggard that the Bible talks about a lot, the sluggard is revealing what he worships in the way that he works. He worships things like comfort. He worships things like sleep and ease, right? The, the sluggard worships those things so much. He's willing to sacrifice having food on the table and a roof over his head to get the gods he really wants like sleep and comfort. And then you have the cheat in the book of Proverbs and the cheat's willing to do anything to get ahead at work. Not just cheating, breaking laws and doing things that are unethical. The cheat will cheat his or her spouse out of a relationship to get ahead at work. The cheat will cheat his or her kids out of having a mom or dad and neglect their kids to get ahead at work. And the cheat's telling us what we worship, what he worships or she worships, The cheat's saying, hey, what I really worship, what I really need for identity to be named, to have security, it's the approval of people, it's success, it's money, it's climbing the ladder, it's the next level of house or the next level of car. And I'm willing to do anything to get those gods. I'll even sacrifice these relationships over here that should matter to me on the altar of the gods that I really worship. Now, listen, everybody in this room, we, we we all have a bit of identity confusion as it relates to work. And all of us in this room bounce back and forth to some degree or the other between the sluggard and the cheat because all of us have been affected by sin. And the result of sin is that we don't have a right relationship with work. We don't know how to find identity in God and then work in such a way that reflects that identity. We go to work to try to tell us who we are. And and that's the full spectrum, man. I get stressed out for our young moms with like the mommy blogging movement. It's like, I don't even know if it's real. Like, I don't even know if those ladies are really doing those things. Like the mommy blogs where it's like, hey, this is my three-year-old. We're just studying Latin. (laughs) This is my three-year-old. This is the souffle that he baked during home ec. (laughs) Right, like, or, or whether or not it's that kind of comparison culture with work or whether it's the corporate culture that we live in where it's like your whole value is based on how many subordinates you have and how high you climb the ladder or the academic culture where if you're not producing writings, like you're nobody or the art culture that we live in, which is all driven by identity and building a crowd and a clique, like whatever little niche that you're in, here's the reality. We're so flipping confused about who we are. And we go to work and we use work to try to name us and to try to tell us who we are. And work often reveals that the gods that we worship are not gods at all. So here's what Jesus does. And it's really amazing. It's really amazing. Jesus takes on flesh, dies in our place, 
so that our relationship with God, instead of being fractured and broken due to sin, can be restored due to his grace and righteousness so that we can again freely receive the name that God wants to bestow on you as his children. So that your name is not a name that you're having to carve out of your own reality with your own hands. Your identity is a gift from God in Jesus. Your acceptance in God in Jesus brings you security. It brings you comfort. It brings you joy. When your name gets given to you through the finished work of Jesus, what happens is you get invited into rethinking work in light of the gospel. You get invited to actually see work not as a necessary evil that you should avoid like the sluggard, and not like a God that you should bow down at and sacrifice your family to like the cheat, but you get to see work rightly as a way that you're able to return to God's original intent of you reflecting his beauty and his goodness. So let me give you a few things that Jesus enables with work. Work and redemption. Let me give you four things really fast. Thanks to the finished work of Jesus, whatever your job is, it can be worship. It can be worship. In the context of discussing work, Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. Here's what he's saying. Um, Whatever you do, first of all, meaning in this cultural moment, have you guys felt the weight, especially the young people in our church, have you felt the weight that if you don't like 24 seven love every single thing about your job, then life is meaningless for you? Is that not the message right now? Like you have to have the perfect job that's tailor-made for you and you have to just love it all the time. Sometimes we think we found that job and then after like maybe four hours, (laughs) we're like, oh, I still have to do emails in this job and emails are terrible. Emails came from hell from Satan. He invented emails or fill in the blank with whatever it is you don't like about it. And then we're like back to the rat race of, oh, I got to find the perfect job. I got to climb the ladder. Now it's not wrong to use your gifts and get better and change jobs. If you feel like God's calling you to change job, it's not wrong to receive a promotion, but here's what he's saying. Whatever you do, starter jobs, college jobs, whether you're a student whether you're in retirement, whatever phase of life you're in, whatever amount of money you make, whatever kind of work that you're in, whatever you do, as long as your job is not not ethical or illegal, you're to do your job heartily unto the Lord, not unto your boss. That's worship language. Hey man, let me tell you something that could really change the way that we together grow in our following of Jesus in 2018. If we could start seeing Monday morning as a sacred opportunity to behold and adore and honor the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that we get up and go to work, it would change the rest of the week for us. It would change it, man. Like if you saw your cubicle or your coffee shop that you work in or your office or your business or your car, whatever it is that you work in, if you saw it as a sacred place to actually worship God by seeing Jesus as your boss, not your boss as your boss and to honor him with your thoughts and to honor him with the way that you labor, it would flip the script from having boring, mundane, meaningless jobs. And it would start to breathe life into the very work that we do. That's what God wants for you. Your work is sacred to him. 
He wants it to be a space of worship. Here's what Martin Luther wrote about this. It's great. Luther wrote, the idea that service to God should only have to do with a church altar, singing, reading, sacrifice, and the like is without doubt the worst trick of the devil. How could the, de- how could the devil ever have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service to God takes place only in church or by works done therein? The whole world could abound with services to the Lord, not only in churches, but also in the home, kitchen, workshop, and field. Yes, work is worship. And just as the world in the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 is like a temple and God puts man and woman in that temple to worship God with all of life, not just sacred feasts and sacred moments, God gave you a job to be a place of worship that you could honor God in. Secondly, work is also about provision. How many people would, would like God to meet your needs for daily bread this year? I would, right? That would be great. Well, one of the ways that God meets your needs for provision is through your work. Look at 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. This is some pretty intense stuff from the apostle Paul. He writes, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Here's what he's saying. Don't talk the like spiritual talk. Don't, don't try to run that spiritual game and then live a life that's lazy. God actually wants to meet needs and provide for your relatives and your family through the labor of your hands and the labor of your intellect. Case that's too ambiguous. Let me read one more. Some of you are like, I don't think that that's what that means. I think it's good to be lazy. <laughs> let, me, let me read this. This is 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, not a suggestion. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the, with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And it was not because we do not have the right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Um, I'm not saying I endorse it, but anybody ever seen the big Lebowski? <laughs> like the dude's lifestyle is incompatible with a follower of Jesus. Sorry to bum some of you out. It's, it's incompatible. Like the idea that we could claim to be followers of Jesus and then go to work and get a paycheck for 40 hours and really only be given like when you include Facebook and cat videos and, and really only be given like half that, that is incompatible with the people of God. We're to work hard unto the Lord. We're to work in such a way that honors Jesus so that we can provide for the needs of our family. And listen, if you're out of work, you don't need to feel any shame because work is not at all where you place your identity as a follower of Jesus. And if you're working to find work, that's your job. Praise be to God. And in the meantime, the scripture is really clear that when 
people of God fall on hard times, they're not to be ashamed of that. They're to admit that and ask for help. And the other people of God are to care for them and love them and honor them as brothers and sisters. So work, what's it about? Well, worship, what's it about? It's a way that God wants to provide for your family. Let me give you two more quickly. Work is about mission. We wanna be a church for the city. That's not just about doing for the city symposiums and 405 center. Being a church for the city means we see our jobs as arenas of mission. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Are the people of, are the people of our city that don't know God, are they gonna see the light of the gospel most brightly when we're in here together or most brightly when we're out there scattered? Well, there's a way in which they see the light of Jesus as we gather and we invite our friends and family members to hear the gospel. That's true. But there's a lot of people that aren't coming into one of our buildings to hear anybody preach the good news of Jesus. There's a lot of people that don't know Jesus and the way they get to experience the light of the gospel and the salt of Christ is not as we gather on Sundays, it's as we scatter all over the world. And here's what's crazy. It's crazy, man, that in the first 300 years of the church, when the church was exploding with growth in the midst of opposition from the Roman empire and from uh, sort of the, the Jewish religious leadership of the day, in the midst of all that opposition, the church is exploding with growth and they didn't have any formal missions organizations. That's crazy. Why did the church grow like crazy? Well, because people follow Jesus, not just into the church gathered, but they follow Jesus into the marketplace. They followed Jesus at work. They shared the good news of Jesus with neighbors. They told people about what Christ had done. Leslie Nubian puts it like this. Ordinary Christians working in business, industry, politics, factory work, and so on are the church's first line troops in our engagement with the world. Yes. We have a great college ministry at Frontline. It's awesome. What night does it meet? It doesn't meet at night. It, it, it's a college ministry that's made up of the fact that we have a several hundred college students that are a part of our church that get to be salt and light in our college campuses. We have a killer business, business person's ministry in our church. It's fantastic. When is the breakfast and the pancakes? <laughs> well, we actually don't meet for breakfast and pancakes. Uh, our business ministry is that we have businessmen and women that scatter all over our city to be salt and light. Like I could go on and on. We, we don't just want to be the church in here, although we do, and that's beautiful. We don't just want to go to church, although that's important. We also want to go and be the church in our city, share the good news of Jesus. Let me end with one more. What's work about worship, provision, mission? I'll end with this. It's about service to mankind. It's about service to mankind. Listen to Philippians chapter two. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Certainly Paul's talking about interpersonal relationships, that we have this mind in Christ Jesus, that we're not to compete for honor, we're to outdo one another in showing honor. The only place that you're supposed to outdo other Christians is in showing honor. We're to serve one another like Jesus served us. 
So it's true about relationships, but don't you think that that's probably also true about the way that we work for the common good of our city at work? I think it is. I think, I think seeing your making of that latte and handing it to a customer early Monday morning when nobody wants to get up and be outside, when you see that rightly and you've been formed by the work of Jesus who died for you and he served you and he came after you and you hand that over, and I'm not saying handing it over with a Christian track or handing it over with like, you know, just handing it over as a servant wanting to love them and honor them and treat them with respect. I'm telling you, that brings the aroma of Jesus into our city. Now don't get all weird and think that that means that we can just love and serve people and never tell them about Jesus and they'll meet him. They won't if you don't tell them. But in our work, carpentry, welding, Tinker Air Force Base, stay-at-home moms, education, right? All, All of our restaurant workers, whatever it is that your job is, if you take on the posture of Jesus, by God's grace, you, you have that in you. He's given you his servant formed love and mercy. When you take the posture of Jesus and you go to work to serve people, the aroma of Jesus comes into our city. One of the best ways we can work for the thriving in OKC is just to scatter as servants all week long, to love and honor people. I'll end with a great quote. This is helpful when we think about this. John Coltrane, the great musician, he wrote this. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. This album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say, thank you, God. Through our work, even as we do in our hearts, and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. Hey, my prayer for 2018, among other things, is that we would approach work as the people of God rightly. That we would go to worship Jesus, to be salt and light on mission, to provide for the needs of our families, and to actually serve our city well. That we would do that in 2018, that we'd follow Jesus. Like, imagine how much closer you could be to Jesus. And I don't mean... Like you don't contribute to his work, but you can experience his work more deeply. Imagine how much closer you would experience the presence of Jesus if you knew that he wanted to go to work with you tomorrow. Not just right now, because he does.